Welcome to Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kristen Musselman, who is last author on a recent paper in the journal Spinal Cord, along with co-authors Catherine Chan, Jay Wong Les, Janelle Unger, Angela Yu, and Kay Masani. The paper is titled Reactive Stepping After a Forward Fall in People Living with Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury or Disease. Dr. Musselman is a physical therapist and scientist with the Neural Engineering and Therapeutics Team at the Kite Institute, which is the research arm of the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. She's assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at University of Toronto. She's active in the Canadian Physiotherapy Association and now, of course, in the American Physical Therapy Association with this very podcast. And she's academic lead of the Walking Measures Group and the Canadian ABT Community of Practice for the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute. So welcome, Kristen Musselman. Thanks, Rachel, so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Um, well, so, you know, let's start by talking about balance after spinal cord injury. And, and I want to talk about reactive balance in particular, where the person needs to recover from a loss of balance. Can you just describe for us in general, what do we know, or I guess more specifically, what did we know prior to this, to this study in this area? Sure. Well, reactive balance, it's, it's a key part of our postural control system. And as you kind of mentioned, it really is our last line of defense against a fall. So to try to recover balance that's been lost. And so it refers to our ability to regain control of um, the movement of our center of mass or, or to pull our center of mass back within our basis support. And we, we can do this through movement at the ankles or the hips, you know, which we've uh, often called the ankle and hip strategies. Or we can do it by taking um, rapid reactive steps to try to increase our basis support. And it's this um, rapid reactive stepping that we've focused on in our research. And, you know, surprisingly, we actually don't know that much about reactive balance control after spinal cord injury. Um, we do know that in other neurological populations, like individuals living with the effects of stroke, the inability to take a reactive step is associated with the occurrence of falls. Um, and as I'm sure many uh, of those listening are aware, people with spinal cord injury do have a lot of falls as well. So a recent meta-analysis found that 78% of ambulators with spinal cord injury will fall each year. So it's definitely reasonable to expect that reactive balance control is impaired after spinal cord injury, um, but specifically what aspects are impaired wasn't known. You know, for example, are there deficits related to the timing of the movement and muscle activation or instead, are there spatial deficits? So, you know, for example, maybe they can't take a big enough reactive step to appropriately reposition their, their center of mass. So those are some of the questions that we had um, going into doing this research. Great. Yeah, boy, and I can certainly point to, as a clinician, you're supporting things that I felt like I knew already, as I would experience that in the clinic of people having lots of difficulty with um, reactive balance after a spinal cord injury and looking to the research literature and really having a hard time understanding how to proceed. So um, thanks for reinforcing, I guess, or validating the experience that I've had at least. And so you did this study or your group did this study. And, and so what did you do and, and what were the results? Yes, what we wanted to do was, was to characterize reactive stepping in, in people who are living with incomplete spinal cord injury. So as a first step, um, 
we compared their reactive stepping ability to that of age and sex-matched individuals who do not have a spinal cord injury. And what we decided to do in this first study is focus on two aspects of reactive stepping. So first is, is the behavioral response, which just simply looks at how are the participants recovering their balance after perturbation. So can they take a single step like most people who do not have a neurological damage do? Or, you know, do they need to take several steps to reposition that center of mass within their base of support? Or are they unable to recover their balance? So that's the behavioral piece that we looked at. Um, and then the second piece we looked at were these temporal parameters of reactive stepping. So this includes things like the onset of muscle activity in legs um, and also the reaction time. So, you know, how quickly can they respond? So for that, we look at the length of time between the onset of the perturbation and then the actual movement um, that's elicited. So in this case, you know, lifting off the foot to take a, a reactive step. But what we needed to figure out is how to look at this behavior in a standardized way. And so we use a lab-based assessment um, that's called the limb release test. Um, and this test has been used with the stroke population. It's also been used previously in older adults. Uh, and basically what it does, it, it simulates a forward fall, of course, in a safe way. So if you just try to picture yourself standing and you're in a safety harness, that's you know, going to prevent you from, from hitting the ground if you were to lose your balance. Um, that safety harness is around your trunk. And then what we do is we attach a, a horizontal cable to the back of the safety harness right around the level of your low back. And then that cable, which is about a meter long, it's um, attached to the wall behind you. And you get asked to lean forward from your ankles as best as you can until about 10% of your body weight is supported by that cable. And then you're just asked to sort of hold that position. And then at some point, you know, where we don't give you warning, we'll release that cable. And in that situation, you do fall forward and you need to elicit those reactive steps in order to recover your balance. And so that's what this lean and release test is. And that's what we used um, in the paper that we're talking about today. I see. And so what came of it? What were the differences in both the behavioral responses and the temporal or the timing of your responses? Yeah. So so we found that people living with spinal cord injury um, do show different behavioral responses on a lean release test when, you know, in comparison to those who do not have a spinal cord injury, which, you know, is not surprising. Um, so the group with spinal cord injury showed fewer single step responses. So they tended to need uh, multiple steps, sometimes two, sometimes three, uh, to recover their balance, or in some cases they were unable to recover their balance. Um, what was, I think, more surprising for us is that we didn't find differences in those, or, or very few differences in those temporal parameters um, between the two groups. So when people with spinal cord injury were able to execute a reactive step, um, they did it as quickly as those who are living without a spinal cord injury. The only temporal parameter that we found to be different between the two groups was the onset of EMG activity in the tibialis anterior of the stepping leg, um, and it was delayed in those individuals with spinal cord injury. But that was really the only difference in the timing data. It's so interesting, and um, I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, you know, one is, would the, do you expect that there would be any difference in those balance responses in somebody with spinal cord injury, or I guess in somebody without a spinal cord injury, whether they knew that that loss of balance was coming? Because it sounds like you didn't, they didn't know necessarily exactly when the cable would be released, but presumably they knew that it would be released. Does that, does that change anything, do you think, about their balance response? 
Yeah, that, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, with this test, we're trying to tap into that reactive response, which which I think we're getting uh, at least some of the behavior that we see is due to those reactive responses. But it's true that, you know, these individuals do know that a perturbation is likely coming. Um, and so there is going to be some element of, of anticipatory, you know, muscle activation or, or preparation as they're waiting for that release to happen. Um, one thing that we did do to try to, to offset this a little bit, although we acknowledge it's, it's not going to remove those anticipatory sort of postural control at all, like completely, is that we would intersperse false trials. So we would still have people lean. They get to the point with 10% of their, their body weight supported through the cable. And sometimes we just did not release the cable. So sometimes it would get released and sometimes it wouldn't across the different trials that we did in a session. So so we tried to mix it up a little bit that way to kind of have them guessing or, you know, not sure whether they were, the cable was going to be released. But, but they're definitely engaging, or we would think, some anticipatory strategies as well. Right. Yeah, the, that's, that seems like a really reasonable like adjustment to your protocol for that, though. I mean, you, you sort of can't not tell them that something's going to happen, right? Ethically, we did need to let them know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then coming back to the results of the study, so if the timing of movement and the activation of muscles um, doesn't explain the differences in basically success of recovery of balance, you know, what what's left? What other options are out there to consider? Yeah, and that, that's a really good question and, and, you know, something we have been, been working on to try to figure out. So, you know, as you said, since the temporal parameters seem to be, you know, minimally impaired in those with incomplete spinal cord injury or at least those who are able to initiate a reactive step, um, we've now been looking at, at least more closely, at the spatial parameters. So things such as the step length and also the width of the reactive step. What we're finding there actually is, is quite interesting. So we've been finding that the average length or width of the reactive steps um, that people with spinal cord injury take, those average values don't differ um, to the average values of people without a spinal cord injury. But where we do see group differences is in the variability of that step length and step width with people with spinal cord injury having significantly greater variability in these spatial parameters. So it means they aren't being consistent in the size of, this, of the reactive step they're taking when we do this test, despite the size of the perturbation being kept consistent. And so they likely aren't um, optimally repositioning their center of mass within their base of support. And so this is probably what leads to having those multiple steps um, taken or either in some cases having the falls into the harness. Oh, that's so interesting. Can I Can I restate this back to you to make sure that I'm understanding it correctly and I'm if I'm needing to do that it might be maybe it'll be helpful for somebody listening too. So as you've tested the differences in the spatial parameters of those stepping responses to recover balance, I guess, you know, clinically, if I had to guess what would have come out of that, I would have guessed that the steps would tend to be smaller in in size. But I think what you're saying is that on average they weren't smaller in size compared to somebody without a spinal cord injury, but they were more variable from trial to trial. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, and I, you know, I thought just like you you did as well that I was expecting to see that they were taking smaller, shorter steps, which of course then also wouldn't allow the center of mass to get repositioned back into the base of support. And so that was, you know, as a result, they had to take multiple steps to to actually catch up 
their center of mass. And, and so, but you're right, that that's not actually what we found. Um, so sometimes they're taking, it's almost like too big a step. Sometimes they're taking too small a step. And there's this variability where they're, they're not hitting that kind of ideal positioning of that stepping foot in order to regain their balance. So I think that's an interesting uh, piece of information for us as clinicians to think about, because I had been going kind of assuming like, well, they need to take bigger steps and maybe that's what we need to focus on in our in our training of reactive stepping in, in people with spinal cord injury. But now I'm having to rethink that that's not necessarily um, where their their challenge is, and it's more around trying to be more consistent with control of where they place the foot. Oh my word! Yes, I'm I'm as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking like I I just need to take some time now to think back through all of the people with spinal cord injury that I've worked with over the years on reactive balance and like rethink <laughs> what I saw and um <laughs> wow okay I I'm I'm going to I'm going to chew on that one for a while um but maybe I'll I'll sit with myself later on and and chew on that really really interesting so will you talk about you know so we've you've got these findings in people with spinal cord injury how does that compare to other patient populations so are there similar findings say in people with stroke or in older adults or does something different happen in those groups uh sure yeah i, I can i can speak to that so um there's there's definitely behavioral similarities in reactive stepping between people with spinal cord injury and those with stroke and also even older adults. So it's, you know, been previously reported uh, in older adults and also individuals with stroke that, you know, they'll tend to take multiple steps to regain their balance uh, on a test like this, um, just like some of our participants with spinal cord injury did. And further, like in, in those with stroke, some are unable to execute a reactive step and fail to recover their balance, just like some of our participants with spinal cord injury did. Where our results seem to differ with the other populations, at least so far, and acknowledging that, you know, we've sort of studied about um, just over 20 individuals with spinal cord injury so far, is with respect to the, the temporal parameters. So where in people with stroke, um, they have shown slower foot-off timing when, when they do the lean and release test, so their reaction time is a bit delayed compared to those who are not living with stroke. And as I mentioned, you know, we talked about earlier, we didn't really see this in our participants with spinal cord injury who were able to to execute a reactive step. So they were able to do it um, really just as quickly as the age and sex match individuals without spinal cord injury. Interesting. And then, you know, in your paper, you you mentioned that there were four participants who were unable to recover their balance on any of the trials. They fell every single time. So their data was excluded. Um, and it makes sense that it was excluded, right? The, the the things that you were looking at, you wouldn't necessarily apply in that case. But as a clinician, I'm curious about those patients too, because I would, I think, reasonably suspect that they also need better reactive balance. And so what do you know about the reactive balance responses of those patients? Is there anything that you can say about them um, at this point besides the fact that they, they fell each time? Yeah, so I, you're correct in that the, the test, that the lean and release test, like what I would suggest is probably not the most appropriate test for those individuals to look at their reactive balance control, you know, because they may still have some ability to respond to some perturbations with hip strategy, ankle strategy, perhaps, and, and that would need to be um, studied. But, but what we learned in, in our study looking, you know, using this very specific um, type of perturbation is that 
there, so for those four, four participants, their reactive stepping response was absent, like, like you mentioned. So it does mean if, if they were to experience a large enough perturbation, uh, so one that's big like they experience with the lunar release test, they're very likely going to fall. Um, and, and these four individuals, um, we were quite interested. I mean, it's only four individuals, so it's difficult to make um, sort of any generalizations. But we did look at, you know, various factors and, and tried to consider some of the things that could be distinguishing these participants from the rest of our sample who, you know, were able to, you know, maybe not take a reactive step every time that they experienced the perturbation, but at least um, a few times they could. And where we really saw that the differences in terms of their clinical profile, I guess, was was in their walking ability. So these four participants first all relied on a gate aid for ambulation, but, you know, they really couldn't even execute a voluntary step without significant upper limb support. And they also had quite a slow gait speed. So I think in, in all cases for those individuals there, Gate speed was less than 0.4 meters per second, and that was quite, you know, a bit lower than the rest of our group, where, where really the rest of our sample was hitting gate speeds, you know, above 0.4 meters per second. Okay. Well, I guess you're, you're reinforcing, I think, some of the things that I've, I think, sometimes told my students, where you know, if they have some, as we've looked at testing reactive balance with something like the best test, right, where they're having them lean into their hands and then pull it, taking their hands away, that say if somebody can only walk with a walker, for instance, like maybe that's not the test for them right that moment. You're might, maybe not going to get a lot of extra information from that. You maybe already know enough about their reactive balance. And what you're saying, I think, maybe reinforces that. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think, you know, there's, you know, as a clinician, you sort of look at the overall level of function of your client and you can kind of gauge um, just through observation of their movements and and how they walk, if they're able to walk, what sort of reactive balance control they're likely going to have and what tests would be appropriate. So, you know, the the best test or mini best test is, a, I think, a great clinical tool uh, to look at reactive stepping specifically. So those, you know, you're going to look at that typically in those individuals who have some ability to execute at least a voluntary step without much upper limb support. Right. And I and I certainly don't mean to imply that you would never, ever use the best test in somebody who uses an assistive device. I don't mean to make a blanket statement like that. But right. If somebody, you know, a test like that, if somebody needs that much arm support, you, you may already have a lot of information about their their reactive balance. Yeah. Uh, well, so what does and, and we've talked about this a bit along the way here, but what does this all mean for clinicians, you know, in terms of what we're doing with our patients with spinal cord injury for evaluating and treating reactive balance um, in people with incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, are, are we ready to change our clinical practice based on all of this yet? Well, I, I mean, I think um, many of us would, would agree reactive balance, it's, it's an important component of, of a comprehensive assessment of, of postural control. And so I do think, you know, there's quite a few physical therapists out there um, finding ways to assess reactive balance control when they when they do their assessments with individuals living with incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, but I know at least from from some of the it's research that's been done in Canada, so here I'm referring specifically to Canadian physical therapists, um, there was some work done looking at, you know, what aspects of posture control get get evaluated on, on a regular basis. And actually reactive postural control was um, 
the least likely to be assessed by Canadian physical therapists amongst individuals, not just with spinal cord injury, but anyone who's requiring um, balance training. So this can be older adult population, neurological populations, as well as even some, some orthopedic populations as well. So, I mean, I think it's on, on the radar of, of many physical therapists, but maybe there's more we could be doing to try to incorporate it um, into our assessment. And then, of course, if, if you see deficits as you do the assessment, so deficits in, in reactive balance control, and that gives you perhaps a target to, to work on in balance training and, you know, there's been, you've probably heard of perturbation-based balance training, or now it's more commonly referred to as reactive balance training. So it's a, an approach to balance training that's definitely been adopted amongst individuals post-stroke, and it's been used in Parkinson's as well, as well as, you know, fall prevention programs for older adults. And so that's um, one approach that we've been looking at over the past few years just to see is it you know feasible to do with those with incomplete spinal cord injury and, and is it helpful. So it's one way that if you see those deficits in react balance that you could perhaps try to target your your training to do, to address those impairments. Great. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I, I'll make just an anecdotal statement. I'd say I, I, I doubt that the physical therapists in the United States are immune from the same issues in terms of what areas of balance we work most on. So that's really helpful advice south of the border too. And certainly very important balance. If we're not if we're not addressing reactive balance, we better be getting anticipatory balance just about perfect then, right? So and, and that's not how that's gonna roll. So um I think great advice. And I can sort of add to that we've we've done some other studies looking specifically at balance during walking and again I was surprised it, the findings weren't what I expected. So we used a, a slip perturbation paradigm in these studies, but we actually found just when those with incomplete spinal cord injury are just walking, just normal walking, so there's no perturbation, they actually show um, markers of, of greater anticipatory balance control or stability compared to age and sex matched uh, individuals that don't have spinal cord injury. But then, of course, when they experienced the slip, um, they were really lacking in again, the spatial, more so the spatial parameters of, of their reactive responses. So it really highlighted for me, it, you know, these were individuals with chronic injuries who've been, you know, adapting over time as they've, you know, they've acquired these anticipatory strategies almost enhanced to, to try to deal with the threat to, to, you know, the ongoing threat to their stability. Um, but it really is the reactive piece that, that's quite missing and, and likely leading to the high rate of falls that we see in this population. Oh, that's incredibly interesting, right? I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, like, right, clearly, even if they're upping their anticipatory balance game, that reactive balance problem, then, you know, if we still have 78% of people with with incomplete spinal cord injury who are ambulatory falling each year, that's clearly there's there's a spot where they we need to help them up their game. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Musselman, thank you so much for joining me today. This is an area where, again, those of us in the clinic, we consistently see this as being an important issue. Balance in general, and I, and I hope that anyone listening is feeling convinced about how important reactive balance is in all of this for, um, for people with spinal cord injury to be able to function and, and to function safely with the things that they're doing every day. So, um, and, and certainly historically, somehow it doesn't seem like it's gotten as much attention in the research or in the clinic, which you've outlined really nicely, as, as I would think that it would. So thanks for speaking with me today and, and, and 
frankly, thanks for doing this important work in the first place. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was was great to chat with you. And thanks to you also, Discus listeners, for tuning in. Um, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science is a podcast from the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association. Ethan Stoller edited this episode and composed the theme music. And I'm Rachel Tappan. Until next time.